Welcome, old friend. Thank you for tuning in to Renegade Files. I'm your host, Lex Gordon, broadcasting this shortwave transmission from the Jungle Villa Outpost, deep in the uncharted tropics. This is Renegade Files episode 42, Children with Past Life Memories. Many cultures and religions have deep beliefs in reincarnation, past lives, and a cyclical nature of birth and rebirth. For people in such societies and groups, the idea of returning to live on Earth after having been here before is part of their everyday lives. But for others, the notion of a living person's soul, personality, or identity having existed in some manner before they, as we know them, were born, falls squarely into the realm of the paranormal. Some see these ideas as a fantasy, delusion, or mere entertainment. But for families with children who insist that they have been here before, the experience can be everything from comforting and awe-inspiring to frightening and stressful. On this episode of Renegade Files, we'll look into several such cases of children who know and can do things that no one can explain. The detailed recollections of previous lives they themselves insist they lived baffle doctors, caregivers, and scientists alike. Most often, these children grow up to adjust and be fine, and the phenomenon is, for the most part, while not without its downsides, not a terribly negative one. So stretch out on the Chase Lounge of Curiosity. Open your mind to unexplained possibilities and join me as we dive into the unexplained worlds of children with past life memories. 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 In the past, and maybe even on one of our episodes, I've made an observation as kind of a joke asking why it is that everyone who recalls a past life used to be some important historical figure. People seem to have always been Cleopatra or Abraham Lincoln. Why has no one ever been a janitor in a past life? I'll admit now that I was wrong about that, and in this episode, we will see that this clearly is not always the case. So, let's get right into it. Courtney Perosco Courtney Perosco, three years old, was coloring with her mother at home in Louisiana. Courtney sighed and said that she missed her grandma Alice. When her mother told her that neither of her grandmothers were named Alice, Courtney said she knew that, but Alice was her grandmother before she was Courtney. Courtney told her mom that Grandma Alice had taken care of her when she lived before in another time, because her parents had died. 
She also said her grandma Alice died when she, Courtney in her past life, had been 16. Her mom then said, Well, I'm glad you're living with us now. The little girl said, I know you love me. That's why Grandma Alice recommended that I choose you as my new parents. She described her past life home as being someplace very cold where trees dropped their leaves and it snowed every winter, unlike Louisiana where they lived now. She said that when you first find yourself in heaven you're allowed to rest for a while, but then you have to work to learn the things you want to do in your next life on earth and you choose a family that will help you learn and help you with what you need. Courtney's mother asked her if she had met God, and Courtney said she had only seen God with her soul. James Leninger When James Leninger was two years old, he had frequent nightmares about dying in a plane crash. Once he awoke from one of these and said his plane had been shot down, his father asked the boy who had shot the plane down, and James said, the Japanese. When his father asked him how he knew it was the Japanese, the boy said, the Big Red Sun. This was shocking to the father because the young boy, two years old, was describing Japanese fighter planes, and how could he have ever known that? The father took James Leninger to a history museum with a World War II exhibit, and this was when he was a little bit older, maybe four. James was fascinated by every item in the exhibit, and he begged his dad to let them stay, which they did for three hours. James continued to tell his parents that he remembered a man in his dreams who was also named James. The plane that the young boy James had flown took off from a boat called the Natoma. He said there was another pilot named Jack Larson who flew a plane called the Corsair. James Leninger constantly drew pictures of propeller planes and sky battles, and he named his three G.I. Joe action figures Billy, Leon, and Walter. His parents had no idea where he had heard such specific names. James told them that those were friends he had in heaven. Determined to find a rational explanation for his son's claims, the father set out to try to find some TV show or cartoon with the names of the things James kept talking about. Instead, he found out that there really was an aircraft carrier named the USS Natoma Bay, which had served in the Pacific during World War II. The crew of this carrier was still holding reunions, so in September of 2002, the father attended one that was being held in San Diego. San Diego. At the reunion, the father learned that a fighter pilot named James Houston had been shot down and died on a mission from the carrier in 1945. Also killed in action were naval aviators Billy Peeler, Leon Connor, and Walter Devlin. All of them shot down just before James Houston with names that perfectly matched young James Leninger's G.I. Joe dolls, the men he said he was friends with in heaven. Also a real person that James had mentioned was pilot Jack Larson. James Leninger had described this person in his dreams, 
Jack Larson had been James Houston's wingman in his final mission. So, potentially, young Jack Leninger's previous life's wingman. Not only had James remembered this man, but remember he said that Jack Larson had flown a plane called a Corsair. But according to all of the records that James Leninger's father could find, Jack Larson had only ever flown an FM-2 Wildcat fighter plane in missions from the Natoma. This small variation of Jack Larson flying a Wildcat and not a Corsair, as James Leninger had said, was the only memory that the boy had seemingly been wrong about. But when the father met with Jack Larson's sister, she showed him several pictures of her father standing next to a Corsair fighter plane. He had actually been a part of a select group of pilots chosen to test those planes for aircraft carrier use. Ryan Hammonds Ryan Hammonds was born in Muskegee, Oklahoma in 2005 and, like some other children who claim to recall past lives, could describe his previous incarnation in astonishing detail. Ryan did not, however, start talking about his past life with his first sentences, but he kept it to himself. By the time he was five, he started to have stressful nightmares that would cause him to wake up crying and depressed. These episodes troubled his mother for a year, and when he was six, he finally told her what was bothering him. He said that he thought he was another person, or that he had been another person before. His mother was scared, and for a time, she did not tell the father this. Ryan told his mother that he honestly believed that he had lived before, as a man in Hollywood, where all the movie stars lived. He said it was a long time ago when people dressed in fancy clothes and all the men wore hats and that they went to big parties where bands played. Ryan said that he had been married five times, had two sisters, took luxurious trips to Europe, and that he had had more than one house. He said he had danced on Broadway. He said he owned a business that hired actors and that his customers would often change their names to make them sound better. He also told his mother how much he loved True Aid. That's T-R-U-A-D-E. And she discovered that True Aid had been a brand of orange soda that had gone out of business decades ago. Prior to this, Ryan had spoken in generalities like fancy clothes a long time ago, movie stars, big Hollywood parties, so his mother had still thought he might just be using his imagination, and maybe by this time she had told the father. But when he described the defunct True Aid with its unusual name and orange flavor, she decided to do some deeper research. At one point, she took Ryan to the library and found a few books on the golden age of Hollywood. While looking through one of these books, they came to a photo of an old Mae West movie, and Ryan jumped up and pointed to a man in the background. He said that is who he had been. That was me. But the man's name wasn't listed in the caption, and they had no immediate way of figuring out who he was. Through her research, Ryan's mother found and reached out to Dr. Jim Tucker, a child psychologist at the University of Virginia 
with experience working with children who claim to have had past lives. Dr. Tucker consulted a film archivist and together they discovered that the man in the photo was Hollywood actor turned agent Marty Martin, who died in 1964. He had found limited success as an actor, but he became very successful and respected through the creation of his own talent agency. This perfectly matched Ryan's description of his having a business where the customers would change their names. At one point, they found out that Marty Martin's daughters were still alive, so they contacted them in hopes of comparing what they knew of their father to the other stories Ryan recalled. By the time they had finished speaking with the daughters, they had a list of 55 confirmed details Ryan had described precisely, including his five marriages, his children, his siblings, and the street address of his favorite house. In sessions with Dr. Tucker, Ryan said that when he was Marty Martin, he had died when he was 61 years old. But according to all of the reports, Marty Martin had actually died at 59 years of age, and yes, that's a small detail. But this made the doctor curious, especially since all the other details Ryan had described about his life as Marty Martin had been so accurate. When Dr. Tucker dug a bit deeper into the records of the Hollywood agent, he found that his age, upon his death as reported by newspapers at the time, had been based on a census report listing his birth date as 1905. But when the doctor found his birth certificate, he discovered that Marty Martin was actually born in 1903. The census and the resulting newspapers, which were the widest publicly available information about Marty Martin's age, had been wrong, and Ryan Hammonds had been right. Jeremy Anderson Two-year-old Jeremy Anderson, the son of Nancy and Ron Anderson of Oklahoma, began to insist that his name was Jimmy as soon as he could form words. As he grew a bit older, he said his name had been Jimmy Hauser, and that he had died. One day, while looking through a magazine with his mother, he saw a picture of an old station wagon. He pointed to the car and said, That's the kind of car that hit me. He also said he was angry with the man who had been driving the car because he had killed him. You can understand how unnerving this would be to a parent. Once, when his grandfather was resting due to back pain, Jeremy told him that his back had been injured as well, but that his back injury had caused him to die. After going on about all of this, the family started to look into old car crashes and deaths, and they found the story of James L. Hauser, the exact name that the boy had claimed to have been, who was born in August 1952 and died in a traffic accident at 15 in August 1967. They found the details of the crash in articles and a police report, but they didn't share any of this information with their son. They drove their son, Jeremy, to the location of the car crash. I'm not sure this is a good idea, but that's what they did. So they went there. The boy described the accident and how he had been thrown from the car, where he landed, and more. 
everything the boy said exactly matched the police and newspaper reports the parents had uncovered. After that, the boy seemed to be happy to be alive, although he remained angry at the driver of the station wagon who had caused the wreck that took his past life. Dorothy Eady. Dorothy Eady, and that's E-A-D-Y, was born in London in 1904. She was an only child and was loved by her family. At three, she fell down a flight of stairs and was knocked unconscious. The parents couldn't revive her, called a doctor, and the girl was pronounced dead. A minute later, while the doctor was still there comforting the parents, the girl woke up and seemed to be fine. The parents were furious with the doctor, as you can imagine, and I'm not sure whatever became of that, but the girl seemed alright, so the parents were ultimately happy. But soon after that, Dorothy began to insist that this was not her home, and she started to describe a palace in the desert, grand buildings, statues, a lush garden that she had just loved, and everyone thought that her bump on the head had shaken something loose. A year after her accident, when she was four years old, her parents took her to a museum that had a collection of artifacts from the old kingdom of dynastic Egypt. Upon seeing the statues and wall paintings, the girl became overjoyed. She ran away from her parents, screaming, These are my people! These are my people! These things are from my home! A little bit embarrassed and not knowing quite what to do, all of the other museum patrons looking at these parents, wondering what's wrong with your daughter, they tried to collect the girl, but she insisted to run around. She looked at everything. They could not get her to leave for hours. Dorothy Eady became obsessed with ancient Egypt, and she read every book she could find on the subject. She got kicked out of Catholic Sunday school for comparing the stories of Jesus to identical stories from the ancient Egyptian gods. She was eventually expelled from her Catholic school for refusing to sing what she thought was an inaccurate hymn that unfairly cast Egyptians in a negative light. By the time she was a teenager, she was studying with world-renowned Egyptologists, and she became an expert at interpreting ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics. She grew up, married an Egyptian man in the 1930s, became an Egyptian citizen, and over the course of several years, she wrote, through a series of deep meditative trances, the story of her past life as the daughter of an Old Kingdom soldier whose mother sold vegetables in a market. Her previous life mother had died and her soldier father, who was unable to be home to raise her, sent her to a temple where she became a priestess and took a vow of celibacy. But she eventually met and fell in love with Pharaoh Seti I, with whom she became pregnant. This was a scandal and she was tortured by the high priest to reveal who the father was, but she refused to name him. All of this was written in hieroglyphics, by the way. She eventually went to work for the Egyptian Department of Antiquities, and with her help, the archaeologists discovered previously unknown archaeology sites, all in the exact places and fitting the exact descriptions given to them by Dorothy Eady who by this time 
had given herself the name Om Seti. She is still regarded as one of the most important scholars of ancient Egypt to ever live. Maybe twice. Romy Kreese. Romy Kreese was born in 1977 in Des Moines, Iowa. Her Catholic parents were shocked when Romy, as a toddler, started to talk about her past life as a man, Joe Williams. She said she had grown up in a red brick house in Charles City, which was a town 140 miles to the north. She said that when she was Joe, she married a woman named Sheila and they had three children. Romy said that Joe and Sheila had died in a motorcycle accident, and she described the accident in minute detail. She had an instinctual fear of motorcycles, and she would panic any time she saw one on the road. She said that once when she was a child, as Joe in her previous life, she had accidentally started a fire in their house, and her mother or his mother had burned her hand and injured her right leg while putting out the fire. Romy often asked to be taken back to her previous home in Charles City because she desperately wanted to tell her other mother, Louise, whom she called Mother Williams, that she was okay. Eventually, the family took her to the city, and once there, Romy made her parents buy blue flowers for her to give to Mother Williams, since they were her favorite. She also said that when they got to the house, they would not be able to use the front door, and they would have to go around to the back door. The parents found a Louise Williams listed in the phone book, and when they neared the address, Romy led them the rest of the way. The parents were then shocked to find a note on the front door directing anyone to please use the back door. They met with Louise Williams, who was thrilled by the flowers, saying that her late son Joe was the only person to give her those. She listened in amazement as the young girl, Romy Cree, talked about all the things they had done, and Mrs. Williams confirmed everything Romy had been telling her parents about the life of Joe Williams the fire, her injured leg, Joe's wife and children, and the motorcycle accident that had taken their lives in 1975, two years before Romy was born. Louise showed the girl a family photo album, and Romy was able to correctly name every single person in all the pictures. That's crazy. These stories blow my mind. I love it. Okay, here are the last three. We'll just look at these quickly. When Gus Taylor was a toddler in the 90s, he told his dad while getting his diaper changed, you know, when I was your age, I used to change your diapers. This startled the dad because the boy had only just begun to speak words and short two or three word phrases. The more the boy learned to talk, the more stories he told about living before and being his own grandfather. He described his great aunt's death at the hands of gangsters and other family secrets he could have never known. Later, the parents discovered, I think in an old letter, that the grandfather had said when he died, he would like to come back as a baby to live with his children. Chills. 
Cameron McCauley was a boy in Glasgow, Scotland, who claimed from two years old that he used to live in a white house overlooking the seashore on the island of Barra. He missed his black and white dog with long hair and his other father, who he said was named Shane Robertson. He also said his father had been killed by a car while walking. He always repeated that his other father didn't look both ways. He didn't look both ways. He was constantly upset because he wanted to visit his other mother to let her know he was all right. Eventually, the family took the boy on the 200-mile roadway journey and boat ride to the island of Barra. They found a white house on the shore previously owned by a family named Robertson, but according to local records, no person named Shane was among their ancestry and none of the men had ever died from a hit and run. But the house was exactly as Cameron had described it for years, down to the number and placement of rooms, the three bathrooms, which was unusual for a house of that age, and a secret garden hidden behind a white gate. This family had also owned a black and white dog with long hair, a border collie, confirmed by a living relative. Barbro Carlin was born in Sweden, 1954. As soon as she could talk, she kept telling her parents that her name wasn't Barbro, but Anne Frank. Her parents had never heard of the famous but tragic Anne Frank, who wrote the diaries her father published after her death in a German concentration camp. And believe me, that is the shortest version of Anne Frank's most horrific and sad experience at the hands of the National Socialist German Workers' Party. Young Barbro Carlin described details of hiding in the Amsterdam attic. She refused to eat beans, which was a food Anne Frank's family subsisted on for the, I think, two years they were hiding before being found and separated at the Auschwitz camp. Then, when she was in elementary school, the teacher taught a lesson about Anne Frank, and this was the first time Barbara Carlin realized that other people knew about the Anne Frank she claimed to have been in her past life. Barbara Carlin had an intense fear of men in uniform, and she eventually stopped talking about being Anne Frank because her parents had taken her to a psychiatrist and she didn't want to be thought of as being mentally ill. But on a trip to Amsterdam with her family when she was 10 years old, the family agreed to take her to see the house where Anne Frank and her family had hidden. Her father was going to call a taxi, but Barbara told him they could walk to the house from where they were. She led them around a few corners and a few blocks away, they arrived at the doorstep of the Anne Frank Museum, the former home. Inside, Barbro grew silent and pale. In the annex apartment where the family had hidden, Barbro told her parents that she could not believe the pictures of the film stars were still taped to the wall. The mother said there were no pictures, and when Barbara looked again, she saw that her mother was right. The wall was empty. When they asked about any such pictures, the tour guide told them that the family had decorated that wall with photos of famous film stars of the day, but those photos had been taken down and stored for preservation. 
And there are thousands of other such cases of kids who claim they lived past lives and who can recall things that no one can explain. So what do you think? Some of the details in the stories are fascinating. Many of these are pure unsolved mysteries. These kinds of stories give our mortality hope for something beyond oblivion after death. They seem to be evidence that life does go on. These experiences could also be part of a Jungian collective unconscious. According to Carl Jung, the shared consciousness of all humanity is the storehouse of archetypes and the cellular memories of all knowledge. The collective unconscious is often used to explain things like child prodigies who can play every Beethoven piano piece without a single lesson, or do complex calculus or geometry in kindergarten. Many of these kinds of kids have what could be called memories of these skills, but not all of them claim to have been someone else in a past life. If you like these kind of stories about special kids, be sure to check out Renegade Files episode number three, Boris Kiprianovich, The Boy from Mars. It's one of my favorites, and it's one of our most downloaded episodes so far. Check it out if you haven't, and share it with your friends if you listened to it already and liked it. All you have to do is send them to our website, therenegadefiles.com, and tell them to check out episode number three, Boris Kiprianovich. And of course, they can find it on their favorite podcast app. I can say that I'm open to believing in reincarnation on some level, as much as I'm open to believe some perennial pagan creation legends or even some of our modern sacred cow pedestaled scientific theories. So many things are possible in our utterly astounding experience of life. This is a fun subject. Even though living through something like this could obviously be stressful for the families and kids who are affected. These cases are examples of our truly mysterious world. I hope you enjoyed learning about them. If you like the show, you can kick a few bucks across the internet on our Patreon page through the link in the show notes or at patreon.com slash renegadefiles. Patreon helps creators like me thrive without selling out to the man. So thank you for supporting the show there. And thank you sincerely for taking the trip to explore children with past life memories with me. I am so glad to have you in the Renegade Files crew. next adventure. I'm your host, Lex Gordon. Stay wild, Utopia child.